A couple of months ago, I found myself in Mexico covered in bug bites. They were literally so bad I couldn't sleep. So I asked my Instagram besties for advice, like the kind of advice you ask when you're desperate for any solution. And one girl told me to go to the Instagram account, Phil's My Pharmacist, to look up his bug bite hack. And the next thing I knew, I was mixing up some really random stuff in my hotel bathroom and putting this pink paste all over my body, but it worked. So I posted a little thank you video to Phil on Instagram, and that was the start of an awesome friendship with Phil's My Pharmacist. Today, I sit down with Phil to ask him all about his journey into being a pharmacist and why he wanted to do this as a career and what some of his most rewarding things are about being a pharmacist. He talks to me about mental health, not judging others, how a good pharmacist will present you with over-the-counter options and educate and let you decide, and some really solid advice about self-love and acceptance. He also talks to me about the best plan for taking opiates after a surgery or when absolute necessary if you know you're prone to addiction and how to safeguard yourself from going into a dangerous situation that could lead to addiction. If you're not already Insta friends with Phil and he's not your pharmacist yet, he probably will be by the end of this interview. Okay. Phil, thanks for being here. I'm so excited to talk to you today. Well, thanks for having me. This will be fun, I think. So fun. So we became friends in September when my husband and I went to Cabo and I was eaten alive at dinner by these like horrible mosquitoes. And I asked my Instagram audience, like, do you have any tips for me? Because I couldn't sleep. They were itching so bad. And I wasn't like, I know better to not like scratch them and irritate them, but like, I just, they were driving me crazy. And so one person said, oh, go watch Phil's my pharmacist. He has a hack for getting rid of bug bites. So that's how I found you. And your hack really did work. I was like mixing like lotions and potions and weird stuff in in my bathroom in Cabo. And I'm (laughs) sure that the people at the resort were like, what is this person doing with all this weird stuff? But it worked. I was amazed. It it does work. And the cool thing about it is it's all stuff you can get from anywhere for really inexpensive, which is the whole idea of the concept we wanted to start was making things accessible and you proved it better than anybody could on vacation, middle of nowhere. And it still worked. Right. Where like, I couldn't even really read the labels or, you know, just kind of was winging it and it still, it worked. It was amazing. So Phil, tell me, first of all, what made you want to become a pharmacist? Where did that all start? So originally I was going to be a pediatrician. Oh, cool. I was hanging garage doors down in the Utah County area. That's where I was at. Okay. And I was going to school and hanging garage doors. And I stopped at a house and I was hanging a garage door. And um, the lady that lived there came out and she just started talking with me. And I don't, usually they don't do that because you show up greasy and dirty and, you know, it's outside. It's yeah. outside and it was fall. She came out and, and would start talking to me and asked me if I was going to school. And I said, yes. And she goes, what are you going into? And I said, well, I want to be a doctor. And she took this long pause mm-hmm. and she said, have you asked your wife if she really wants to be a doctor's wife? And so I'm like, no, what does that mean? And so she, she kind of gave me the rundown. She was an ER doctor's wife. And she's like, you really have to make sure your wife wants to be a doctor's wife as much as you want to be a doctor. Interesting. And so I, I was like, well, whatever. And so I got in the truck with two other service calls on the third one. I got out. I'm not kidding. The exact same thing happened twice in a row. Wow. So at that point, 
it seemed like Providence that I probably should reevaluate what I was getting into. Yeah. So I was really good at chemistry. I really liked medicine. I wanted to help people. So when my wife and I went to the pharmacy about two days later, I started talking to the pharmacist at that point. And that's what led me to be a pharmacist was that story moved me from going into medicine over into the pharmacy. So interesting. And, you know, my husband, Neil, also kind of had an interest in maybe becoming a doc, but he was a medical device rep for 10 years. And he said that as he got to know some of the doctors and saw their lifestyle and their family life, he also kind of decided, I don't think this is the direction I want to go in. Having said that, I'm so grateful for all of the doctors that have, you know, blessed our lives. And particularly, I always think of, I don't know if you've heard of him, but Stephen Terry, Dr. Terry, he was like legendary in the Salt Lake Valley forever and ever and ever. And he delivered my first baby nine years ago tomorrow. And, um, and he passed away right before he was going to retire. And, you know, his family really expressed that they, it was so devastating to them because they were really looking forward to finally actually spending time with him and having him around. Yeah. Yes. Yes. So I always think of him and how he, you know, he and his family sacrificed so much to help so many women bring babies into this world. And that's exactly what it is. And that's part of the reason why we we need to look at it. And maybe this is more than me saying I steered away and lucky me, but more of a paying a tribute to those people that know that and they still go into it. Yeah. And even as much the doctor's spouses too, they, right. they pay a huge price. So, so true. Okay. So pharmacy school. So then, you know, did you get into it and you just loved it or what was that like for you that next path? Um, you know, I, it's funny because I went to quite a few different colleges along the way. I did some time up here at Utah State. I went to Snow College, which I loved, um, you know, and I went down to, to UVU too. And at UVU, I had a organic chemistry professor who offered me a job because I was doing so well in it. Wow. And so, and so, yeah, it was, he wanted, and I ended up turning it down because there's no money in being a chemist at a university. So, yeah. <laughs> So to be honest, it went really, really smoothly all the way through. We got in, I got in really easily, which is lucky. Um, I did get into the University of Utah, so I didn't have to displace my family. So I felt really lucky that way. (laughs) (laughs) So, you know, it was, it worked out really well and, and pharmacy school did go really well, but we, while we're going to pharmacy school, I worked about 35 hours a week in Utah County and then drove from Pleasant Grove up to the University of Utah, which is about an hour and 20 minutes. Yeah. And we had our first child too. So everything can go good, but you have to have real expectations. Yeah. And I mean, I didn't see him a lot and I didn't, I slept even less, but I never got really sick. The cars always worked. So it worked out really well for us that way. That's awesome. So how long have you been a pharmacist in Cash Valley, right? That were, Cash that Valley. Yeah. So the last week of school, um, the last test, I actually came up to Cash Valley and the hospital that I'm inside of right now did not have an outpatient pharmacy. So I took my last final and came up here and signed a lease without having, there was no pharmacy, anything else. So we just opened the doors and took that leap of faith. And that was 19 years ago first week of August. So we're working towards our 20th year up here that I worked, just walked out the door of school and came right up here. So that's awesome. How cool. Yeah. I remember like distinctly the, his face and the personality of like our family pharmacist growing up. His name was Eric. My mom, you know, knew him, would go in and get whatever we needed. And he just was, 
He was so kind and friendly and really an integral part of, you know, my memories of growing up. And so I'm sure that's, you seem like that same type of person where you really have a connection with people and you care. And so tell me some of the things that are like most rewarding to you in your career as a pharmacist. Well, there's a couple of things. So let's start with, I, I really do love having people ask me questions because as a pharmacist, you can educate people. And I think right now there's a distrust of the medical system mm-hmm. in particular over the last 18 months. Yeah. And, and I like the idea that you can educate them in such a manner where you don't, doesn't feel like you're telling them what to do, but mm-hmm. you're telling them what they can do and watching people decide what they want to do. It's been really, I really like that. I have a lot of neighbors that call me late at night and honestly, I really like it because they're usually just panicked. Yeah. And about three words, you're like, no, it's going to be okay. That's a really rewarding component. My patients are my friends. So there's good and bad that comes with that. I mean, I love being the accessibility that I have, but if I had anything to say that was my favorite is I own my own store and there's nothing better than when you have somebody who comes in and they need an antibiotic or needs medicine and they don't have the money right then for you to be able to look them in the eyes and say, it's okay, just pay me in a week. The amount of return you get off of that interaction for a $7 antibiotic, you, you people are just shocked with that. And it's fun for me because it's only $7. It's not a huge deal, but for them to have somebody trust them, that's my favorite part. I like having that interaction, letting them know that somebody's there that's there to help. That's really cool. Well, and as a testament to what you're saying, Someone wrote me a DM right after I was sharing your account and they said, just so you know, this guy is the real deal. Like my, I think she said that it was her brother-in-law or maybe her brother or something who went through cancer treatments and that you were just so kind and that you were very generous at times when they like were struggling to be able to pay for, you know, whatever medication he needed. And, and so that was cool to read that and that, you know, before you were insta famous that that was, you know, who you were and who you still are. So that's really cool. And that's the best part because it, it being able to, there was a patient that I knew down in Pleasant Grove and they were going to another pharmacy at a hospital that had children in its name. Um, and they were going there and they went to pick up a prescription and it was a little over a thousand dollars. So the wife sold her camera to go get the medicine because they felt like it was mandatory. Oh my gosh. Well, somebody knew me, so they were able to text me and they say, Hey, how much would that cost? I'm like, I don't know, $50, $60. And wow. And so in the end, I called down to that said hospital. I'm not going to name any names there, obviously, right? Yeah. And she ended up getting her camera back and able to get the money back and everything else. But being able to be someplace where people can ask you over something really simple, it really was three seconds of time. And I thought nothing of it, but how many people you talk about your pharmacist, I think there's a whole generation of people that don't have a pharmacist. Oh, we don't now like we because of where we live and the proximity to like the closest pharmacies, we don't have a person like I don't have a person because the pharmacy that we go to, it's like there's a new person every time I go in there, it feels like and it's just the closest, but it doesn't have that family friendly feel of, you know, we went to my mom growing up went to Dick's Market and Bountiful and it was Eric and he was just always there, you know, so it's different now for, you know, for my family, we just don't have that. But that's really cool for the people that have you. 
Well, it's, it's hard on the pharmacist too, because most of us want to do that. But some of the environment that's been created has made that really hard for the pharmacist to be who they are. So whether they're working inside of a chain or for whoever it is, most pharmacists want that interaction. Yeah. And I think the patients do too. So I hope to become more of an advocate of saying the patient wants this. We have to give them more time with their pharmacist. Yes. So also interesting, like I'm just having this memory come back to me. I'm pretty sure I had COVID before COVID was COVID. You know what I mean? Like before people kind of knew what it was. It was in January. Maybe not. Maybe not. But it was in January of 2020. And I was going with my husband to Arizona for a wedding for his cousin's wedding. So we left the house. We did the four hour drive. And by the time we got there, I was like, this cold just hit me out of nowhere. And I was like, runny nose, sore throat, everything. And I was pregnant. So I walked into somewhere, a CVS or Rite Aid or something. And I was like, tell me what I can take because I need to take something, but I know, you know, I'm pregnant. And that pharmacist was like, okay, let me tell, like he walked around with me and you can take this and this is okay. And this will help you with that symptom. And it was a lifesaver for me because you walk into a pharmacy as a pregnant person and you're just like, what is safe? What's not? I don't know. It's not written on the labels anywhere. So that was also just like a lifesaver for me. And see, and I think that that accessibility to the guy that stands behind that glass or whatever it is, I think that that's something that will help educate people more than almost anything, because we come out, show you your options and tell you what they do. Yeah. And then that gives that patient, okay, I feel safe and good about this. Mm-hmm. And then you can turn around to the pharmacist and say, yeah, but I still want to be able to use this essential oil, or I still am want to taking this thing. And you can combine them. And the pharmacist doesn't think anything of it because it's not his plan. He's teaching you. And you're like, yeah, if you want to do those, you can do those. Where a doctor, they make a plan and like, okay, here's your plan. Pharmacists just educate. And it's, I think it's more fun of an interaction with patients. Cool. Okay. Ooh, I really want to ask you about what do you think of essential oils? I think essential oils have a very good place in therapy. I don't think essential oils by themselves will ever stand. I think okay. that they're good. They're a good tool. Yeah. And anybody who removes them from their toolbox is missing out on things. But anybody who only pulls from one toolbox is missing out on things. I think, well, we're both LDS, so I'm, it's okay if we mention it this way, right? Sure. I think, I think the Lord gave us all sorts of tools and some of them came from nature and some comes from science. And I think if we don't use everything that's good, mm-hmm. we're missing out on stuff. So my personal opinion, for example, tea tree oil is a fantastic one for foot fungus, but it works even better if you put in some sort of an azole with it because it'll drag it into the toenail bed. So being able to combine those two, mm-hmm. you get best of both worlds. Whereas it's funny to me, it almost feels like the two industries have tried to separate out the patient saying, are you with us? Or are you with them? Right. It's like so polarizing one or the other. Yeah. Why is that though? Cause it doesn't help anybody in the middle. It's almost like the industries have pulled them apart and not the patients. So totally. So I like them. There's some, I really like, there's some I wouldn't use on really young kids. There's some I wouldn't use on this person or that, but I have the same thing with over the counter medications. It's no different. It's just another tool. Right. Right. And I feel the same way too. We, still use and love doTERRA and it's a big part of, you know, our family. And like when my kids get sick, I roll oils on their back that are diluted, but we also take them to the doctor and get antibiotics when we need them. And, you know, so I'm kind of on the same page as you, like we do both. And I think they're both beneficial. 
I do too. And I think that if we ever were able to really smush them together, we would be healthier for it. Yeah. Yeah. I love that. Okay. I really want to talk to you about the stigma behind mental health and that component. And you've talked about that on your Instagram before. So I'd love to get your thoughts on that topic as a pharmacist. Well, the first thing I always tell everybody is you don't owe anybody any excuses or you never need to feel apologetic for getting things that help you feel better. I really, yesterday I had somebody come in and they were picking up a medication and you could tell they were making up excuses on why they needed to have it. Mm -hmm. So first thing I'm telling patients is it's nobody else's business. And for Pete's sake, quit apologizing for it. You don't need to. Like there's the number of people who are experiencing anxiety, depression, um, AED, all those things is an incredible number. And so you've got to remove it from yourself to begin with. Yeah. The last six months I've had this thing where you, no one can like you better than you like yourself. I like to say that to a lot of my patients. So it goes in this place too. If you don't like who you are, if you haven't accepted who you are for who you are, it's going to be hard for you to see other people accepting you. That's profound. I love that. So that's one thing we always, we do that. Number two, I think that we also need to teach people that anxiety and feeling a little blue every now and then isn't bad. You're not a bad person. There's nothing wrong with you. Mm -hmm. But not being able to deal with those things will lead to very detrimental parts of your life. Yeah, We're not trying to change who you are because you're broken. We're just trying to give you the tools so you can be who you want to be. Yeah. I think it's changing for the better. But I still remember people making comments growing up about like, oh, this is, you know, that's Happy Valley where there's so many women who are on happy pills or just stuff that just kind of felt really blanket statement, judgy. And I think people are really understanding what mental health is and that it's legit and it's it's a real thing. I, I also think, though, even as someone who has taken antidepressants um, at different points of my life, it's there is something about like, oh, people are going to think that I like can't function without this or especially the first time. The second time when I had my fourth baby, Harry, I was so I was depressed to the point where it was hard for me to get up and get out of bed and do just basic functions of life. So I knew I needed help to the point where I was like, I don't even care if anyone judges me. I just seriously need help. But the first time with my first daughter, when I had postpartum depression, I remember being so embarrassed about it that I didn't want my own mom to know. Like I didn't want anyone to know except just maybe my husband. And, you know, I was just really worried that people would think less of me or think that I, oh, like you need something to help you be a happy person. Also, I think I had a real shift, like a mind shift when I realized it wasn't about, especially with Harry, it wasn't about, I'm so sad that I'm going to lay in bed and cry. Like it, it wasn't like that at all. It was like, I have no energy. I can't even mentally like rev myself up to get up and put on clothes and go downstairs and eat breakfast. Like I just my whole body was just drained of any kind of energy or will for regular life. I don't even, it's hard to explain, but I think going through that really helped me to understand 
what it is for a lot of other people who struggle with these things. And it's not just some like an event happened and I couldn't deal with it. And so I had to have pills to make it better because that's kind of what I used to think. And it's experiencing it was such a different thing. It was nowhere near that. I had nothing to be sad about. I had this beautiful brand new baby, you know, that's what happens. You have too many serotonin receptors in there. And so what you have to do is you have to take a medication that will block those. So it'll come in and block those serotonin receptors. And if they're blocked long enough, your body does what it wants to do. And it gets rid of those serotonin, reabsorbs those. And then once that's done, you were able to come off and you were you again. So yeah. you had a defect in the same way as, you know, if you had somebody with no thumbs, you're saying open up all those jars. You, you wouldn't do that. You'd be like, mm-hmm. oh, they don't have two thumbs. How are we going to do that? Right. Yeah. In the same way, we don't look at that way with mental health because we can't see it. And you brought up a good point. Everybody sees it as a weakness. Mm-hmm. Don't you think it's more of a strength for individuals who can come out and say, I have this problem, I'm going to fix it than a weakness. Yes. And for me, it, it built so much empathy and compassion that I, I wouldn't have been able to develop that in any other way. Right. Maybe if someone I loved who was really close to me went through that and I watched that firsthand, but I mean, seriously, there was just something different about really experiencing that myself and, and realizing there's nothing that I'm sad about. I just can't, I can't help it that I just have no life in me right now, <laughs> you know? So how old are your kids right now? Nine, six, three, and one. Okay, wait for it. Because as bad as it was watching yourself, mm-hmm. your children, when they go through it, and now that you're sensitive, you can recognize it. Yeah. The hardest thing is seeing it in your kids. Because yeah. then you'll feel like a failure as a parent. And it'll take you, um, it'll take you as a, a moment to realize it's not about you. Yeah. And then to watch your kids have to struggle through. I mean, our kids grow up fast now. Yeah. I mean, I'm, I'm old, I'm 46, but it used to be, you you're could hide old. for years. You're, you're like 10 years older. Don't say you're old. I'm like I'm <laughs> well, nine years older. Well, I just, I remember not having the internet and not remember having to dial phones and, 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 right? not and no able, social media and you had to go find out where you were going Friday night before it happened or else you drove around all night looking for them. Right. And there was no, there were no things going on unless you made plans and you actually showed up when you said you were going to show up. You didn't know what you were missing. Yeah. You didn't totally. see pictures of everybody who were perfect all the time. In fact, you didn't care because you showed up whenever. Yep. So our kids now grow up really fast. So the idea that they become overwhelmed with the size of the world and become anxious when they're trying to learn how to do it is normal. And there's nothing worse than a parent that comes in with their head draped because my kid's sad because something I did wrong. You've got to remove that. And so when that happens, that'll be harder than even when you. So I've taken antidepressants, too. I've done and I've had kids that have way easier to take them yourself than watch your kids have to take them. And now I'm even saying it when I say have to, because, because our kids, my kids got better. They just needed some time. They just had too much on their plate for a bit. Yeah. And then I gave them a tool. We got rid of some of those serotonin receptors. They were able to learn new ways to deal with things and they're doing better. And some kids always produce too much serotonin, Mm -hmm. like just do it's, it's evolutionary in nature, whether Again, whether you want to argue if it's God or if it's evolution, either way, we're given anxiety on purpose. It's a survival technique, right? So this morning, I never thought of it that way, but yeah, this morning before I was supposed to do this podcast, which I'm acting cool because this is my first time ever, but you know, um, 
I felt anxiety and that anxiety pushed me to get my mindset in the right place to understand what I need to do. That was all things, my body saying, you need to get at this. And, but I had the tools to fix it. I don't know if a 12 year old always has the tools to fix the things that no. cause their anxiety or the maturity to even understand what it is. And not just, I think when I would feel anxiety as a kid, I just felt like I did something wrong. I, someone's mad at me. I'm in trouble. Right. You feel it and it's a bad feeling. Yeah. And you're actually told you're not supposed to be anxious. Like society says, don't be anxious. Right. But if we told our kids, it's fine to feel anxious. It's not okay to not learn how to deal with it. So when they feel anxious, instead of feeling like I'm bad, I'm wrong, there's something broken in me, you feel like, oh, well, this is good. Anxiety is good. It helps me move to the next thing. Do you follow or do you know of Dr. Becky Good inside? I think is her. I think that's her Instagram. But she, I'm gonna find her. <laughs> she said the other day, she's like a child psychologist. And she said the other day, we need to teach our kids that all feelings are good. All behaviors are not like all feelings are yeah. acceptable. All behaviors are not. So, you know, stop trying to tell your kids you can't feel this way or you shouldn't feel that way. But to accept all of their feelings and then learn, teach them how to channel their behavior. See, she's brilliant. I think that when your kid's sad, you need to tell them it's OK to feel sad. Yeah, it's not OK to isolate and not be with friends. It's not OK to have suicidal ideation. Those things we need to talk about. But we all feel sad. My wife always talks about needing a good cry. Yeah. Um, obviously. <laughs> and then she's better. Yeah. Like that doesn't, that's not how it works in a man's world. Like a good cry usually leads to another or leads to, you know what I mean? Like we get angry instead. That's what they're, that's how we express that. Right. Yeah. But, but it's funny that we haven't taught our kids maybe that a good cry is okay. Like really healthy. Go cry. Be yeah. sad for two days. It's okay. Three days, but don't isolate. Don't do some of the things that are harmful. So she's brilliant. I'm definitely going to follow her. Yeah, I love that account. Okay, I really want to talk about addiction too because I've had so many interactions with people who have struggled with prescription drug addiction and because my husband and I have been involved in addiction recovery for years and years now. And he has overcome a pornography addiction, which we talk about all the time. Yeah. But... I am not as familiar with, you know, I, I just would love to hear your opinions and and some of your advice for anyone who, like you said, if your kid has to start taking something or someone in your life or even you yourself know, I need to take something that could potentially become addictive or too much of that could lead down a bad road. You know, right. what are some of your thoughts there? Because I'm sure you have them. Well, first of all, there's lots of shows. Everything's big about the opiate crisis. And I really hate how they dehumanize the way that we present this problem. We, okay. we, we put it all on saying it's an opiate issue mm -hmm. and not a human behavior issue. Right. Because by doing so, we can dehumanize the individuals that are involved. They become the substance rather than the human being that's behind it. Because they say that they're all in one thing because opiates are bad. You take opiates and you have this, you don't, the complexity of that individual is lost completely. Hmm. And so I think that we need to view this as a mental health crisis. Right. Because that rehumanizes it because we all have them. If we call it an opiate crisis, we like, oh, we get rid of the opiates. The problem goes away. People around the world huff gas. They sniff 
rubber cement. They like people find ways for substances wherever they're at, however they get. And there's always been those individuals. Yeah. And most of those people have major anxiety disorders and depression disorders and chronic pain that will never go away. So one thing in, in my opinion is until we really start associating and trying to take care of the individual, Mm -hmm. it'll be one crisis after another crisis after another crisis. So on the individuals you're speaking of, when you have an individual who's getting into it, you need to look at that individual and say, yeah, that's a really anxious person in my life. Like they always have lots of anxiety mm-hmm. and they're really good about putting on their headphones and turning on their screen and blocking out the world for three days. This opiate is going to be a problem because they've already shown behaviors as right. an individual that'll lean that way. Right. And then watch for those and treat the person as an individual rather than lumping them into a group. Yeah, that's really good advice. I And there is such a difference between, like, there's a huge difference between my husband and me. Like, if I've ever been prescribed something that's like a painkiller, an opiate, whatever, I am like, how can I get rid of this as fast as possible? You know, yeah, I, just, I, I hate <laughs> that feeling of being, and, yeah. like, you know, in the twilight zone. I do not like that. But for someone like him... He's like, I have to be super careful if I ever need to use something like that, because I know my addictive personality is, I love to check out, you know, See, that's it. That is, that's it's escapism. Yeah. It's got nothing to do with euphoria. Anybody that thinks you get euphoria from opiates, like you shoot up, you know, they show it on TV, they, they shoot up and yeah. you, they're like, now they're in bliss. They've, they've made the celestial kingdom in their brain. Right. <laughs> yeah. That's the way they show it. If you watch somebody really, who's really addicted, they take it and they, they're able to function in society. Yeah. Like their eyes don't roll back in their head. They don't feel like they're not just, Hey man, what's up there. They become functional. And that has a lot more testament to the idea that the escapism of the opiates is the problem, not the euphoria from taking the pills. They're not getting something great out of it. Mm -hmm. They just for a moment can deal with their life. Right. And I have so many friends who, you know, are, are still recovering opiate addicts who, I mean, they'll, they'll never not be an addict, right? If you're an addict, you're always an addict. And they will say opiates weren't my problem. They were my solution and it worked great until it didn't. And then, you know, cause one, right. Like one turns to 10 turns to a hundred a day or whatever it is. You know, I mean, I have friends who were doing a thousand pills a month, you know, Oh yeah. And and that happens because they find a way to escape and then it gets worse because now in order to get back, they have to take three steps back instead of just one in order to get back to where they were even at. Yeah. And they don't even see a way out. I had a friend that just barely got put in prison for something that was terrible. And three years earlier, he was clean, mm-hmm. but he kept saying, well, I'm good. I'm not an addict anymore. And I kept trying to hint that's, that's part of what you've been given. It's not fair, but it's there. You and I, we're lucky. I take them, my skin crawls, I throw up, I'm constipated. (laughs) It's fine. But you and I probably both have our own demons that we wouldn't want the rest of the world to know anyway, you know, because we all have flaws. Yes. I have plenty. Watch my, watch my stuff. You'll find mine sooner or later. Mine all come out. I have many, (laughs) many too. Honestly, like my personality flaws are far beyond what my husband's are, but his lot in life is he's an addict. And he is like, the only way I can not act out on addictive behaviors is to acknowledge that every day of my life for the rest of my life, you know? Yeah. And that's, that's, it's really heavy. 
Yeah. It's a really heavy burden. And somebody who has those, you need to make them feel comfortable in being that way around you. So they'll talk to you when they need it. If you, they feel any shame coming from you, they'll, they, they'll shy away from you. Yeah. Never for shame. So how, so tactical advice, if you have someone who is like, I just had surgery and I don't want to become addicted to these, but I kind of know that's my personality. Like, how do you help someone like that? Can I give you the spill when they're sitting on my counter? Like you're yeah, my patient yes. because I've got a spill that I go through, right? Yeah, let's do it. Okay. So all, all these, this medication is an opiates, which means that it can be addictive in nature. So there's a couple of key things you want to put into place. The lowest dose that works quite often, that means splitting the pills in half is mm -hmm. the best dose. Okay. And when I say work, we used to believe that pain-free was the goal. Yeah. Well, that's not the case anymore. What we're talking about is not being in such pain that you can't do your rehab or you can't sleep. It's okay to hurt after surgery. It's okay to hurt, mm -hmm. but you just don't want to hurt too much. So use the lowest dose you can. It's always easier to add a second half than try to take away a half. Yeah. You've taken a whole, it's, you can't take half of it back. Number two, patients should never handle those meds. There's just a huge difference from between me having it or me having a bottle and saying, okay, Corinne, you're taking care of this for me. I need a pill, Corinne. At that moment, yep. I've taken a conscious second of, do I really want to ask this person for this pill? Mm. And that moment of pause is essential in every way, every way. And then you should have realistic expectations of when you're going to be off as soon as you start them. So you get in and you snap your little finger. So you're like, well, I need it for two days. I'll be fine. Maybe I won't even take it. Just ibuprofen, right? Mm -hmm. In a car wreck, you break three ribs, puncture a lung, have three plates put in. You're like, okay, so I'm going to say I want to be off of these by this date. And your doctor and you should put down a date of when you should feel better after a surgery. So you know when something maybe didn't go exactly as planned. Mm -hmm. So then you're like, okay, I should quit hurting right now. Why am I not? And then sometimes they'll go back in and have to do revisions and things like that. So yeah. Somebody else handling them using the lowest dose possible and having a plan before you take the first one when you're supposed to be off of them. Those are going to be the keys to it. And if you do those things, you have other people involved. Your chances is, I think if you just hand those pills to somebody else and never take them, I think you'd see half as many opiate problems. Just cut in half just by not handling your own pills. That's great advice. Yeah, I, I wouldn't have thought of that, but it's very true that if you're asking someone else and you're involving them, then you there's a lot more accountability. Yeah. You don't want to look that that part of you, especially. So men have a higher rate than women, which I'm sure you already knew that. Right. Yeah. The last thing we want to do is le look weak in front of our woman. So, you know, we're not going <laughs> to we're going to try to be a little tougher. And it's OK. We also I was taught in pharmacy school that we should take people's pain level to a zero. It was actually part of the FDA's guidelines of how it was supposed to be. They taught me at University of Utah, you're supposed to go to a zero. Hmm. So they were out. That's how we were taught in school. Now they're not saying that anymore. So part of the opiate crisis came to the fact that pain management was being pushed wrong from the hmm. very in schools even. Yeah. Because there's no reason after you get a certain age, there is no such thing as a zero pain. Like, right. You're just in pain every day to a certain degree. <laughs> yeah. You need to take anybody over the age of, I don't know, we'll say 35 and watch their first four steps out of the, out of bed every morning. That's, that's normal level pain. You know, yeah. when the seventh step is the one where you straighten your back and finally can walk, you know? <laughs> so when you start telling patients they need to be at a zero, 
that may be built an unrealistic expectation that builds a tolerance that then causes withdrawal type effects. Yeah. And then, then they get scared. It's really scary to withdraw. Yeah. That's really interesting. And I have noticed a huge difference with all four of my C-sections from my first to my fourth, you know, year and a half ago where they pretty much were like, we would like to be able to just send you home with Advil and Tylenol. Um, after your C-section, you know, right. that's the goal is to just, when you leave the hospital, you're only leaving with over-the-counter help, which well, is so different from first baby, you know? Well, I, I wish they'd learn that the pendulum doesn't have to swing from giving somebody 120 pills to giving two. Like, yeah, you, there's a yeah. lot of numbers in between there. Mm-hmm. You could have stopped at 20. You probably would have been safe. You didn't need to go all the way to two, you know, but... Yeah. Yeah, no. And, and they were still willing to give me a little bit to help me out the door, but they said, this is our goal is to get you, you know, as close to that as possible before you leave. Yeah. And and I think if if the doctors have the time and effort, they put the time and effort, which most of them do Mm -hmm. of watching that closer, that extra person involved or your pharmacist, we have people, we only give three days out of time, even one day out at a time because they don't trust themselves. Yeah. And so they come to us. We, we're never judgy. We don't. Our job's not that. Our job is to create an accountable accountability. Yeah. It's also to check on them. Like it's a good day to say, OK, you're obviously not doing well today. Are we taking this for pain or where's your anxiety at? Yeah. But checking on people's huge. So how do you deal with you're in a community, a smaller community. I mean, you're not in like a humongous city or whatever. You're in a place where people kind of know each other and, you know, through school and church and whatever. How do you reassure people that they can come to you and that you're not judging them? You know, what it usually comes down to is they either automatically, a lot of people automatically want to trust. Yeah. They need somebody there. So by being kind and them seeing it is usually what happens. You have to earn it with people. You have to really earn that you that you won't tell anybody. Yeah. It's also funny because as soon as you tell people, I own a pharmacy, but absolutely feel no pressure to come because I don't need to know you're filling your Viagra today if you don't want me to know. <laughs> oh my <laughs> gosh. Know? And that's the one to tell everyone. And But what will usually end up happening is they'll get in a bind and you have the chance to be service to them, which is what most healthcare workers really want. You want to feel useful. Yeah. Yeah. It's not cool. And so once you feel useful and they feel that, then they will, they come back and then word spreads. And there are a few of my neighbors and friends who don't use me and I know they don't. And I always reassure them, whatever you want to, I know enough secrets. I don't need to know any, you don't want me to have. So seriously. I'm sure you, yeah. I'm sure you have an abundance of secrets. Yeah. I, yeah. And most people think that their secret is special and somehow it's like dirty and shameful. So unique. Or, yeah. And you're like, yeah. So do like seven other people who live within a stone's throw. In fact, right? you're even interesting to me. So let's just move along and find something more, you know? That's so funny. Yeah. Neil loves to say that forever he felt terminally unique in his addiction until he yeah. got until into he recovery and man. was like, oh wait, it's pretty much. Yeah. It feels like it's actually everyone. Yeah. Right. And that's more of that's like, that's part of the whole thing with addiction in particular with pornography too, is everybody makes it sound like, oh, you're this unique unicorn. Yeah. No, you were a 14 year old boy at some point and probably a 14 year old girl. And you just had the wrong genes. Everybody had issues. So I think what you're saying there is it's, it, it would be really, wouldn't it be an interesting world if we were able to just really be honest about our flaws? Mm Mm-hmm. 
like how fast do we realize we're all the same and the thing that makes us feel insecure makes everybody else feel insecure. I mean, I don't know. I always just look at it and think, what if we had a bubble above our head that said everything that was wrong with us and you could just see it? I bet you yeah. we were, we'd be nicer people. And you could see all the things everyone else was going through because everybody's going through something. Right. And if you saw that, don't you think it would just be a better society? It's that hiding of those things that makes us. Yes. So give your husband a hug because what he's saying, there are hundreds of thousands of men who need to hear. You'll probably struggle at some point and yeah. it's okay. Cause you can just, it's just normal. So let's just get you done with it. Quit, quit thinking you're special. Let's just get this thing over with. So, yeah. Okay. I want to rapid fire, ask you just a couple of like fun questions. So what's okay. the, what's your best hack so far? Do you think? Bug bite. The bug, bug bite is the one that just took off. Really? Yeah. It's not the one I thought it would be, but the bug bite. Wow. It's, it just took off and it works every time. So it's, it's, and it's universal. Everybody gets bug bites. We yep. have to hit it just right. Thanks yeah. to you. No, that's awesome. Um, what has been maybe one of your favorite, you know, puzzles that you've solved with someone online or on your Instagram? Cause you said you'd love to help people yeah. and answer questions. So actually a lot of your users and a lot of the others, they have, um, keratosis. Oh my gosh. Yes. Yes. Everybody has it. And today I finally cracked it. I think we took took tea tree oil and you're able to add it to the different gel and the tea tree oil is attracted and it'll, it'll drag that into your sebaceous glands better than anything else. So at a lower potency retinoic acid with the tea tree oil, is able to draw that in there, which means that now we've got the retinoic acid right where we want it. Now, when we take, <clears throat> excuse me, urea or any of the other stuff we use, it's going to be isolated a whole lot more where we want. So I was super excited about this one, actually. Like That's awesome. I yeah. have it. One of my daughters does. So I'm excited. Can we use it on kids? Tea tree oil and, and the different as long as it, it's actually made for acne. Okay. Like it would work. So it's it's absolutely safe. And then we'll just, Yeah. I mean, cool. obviously it goes down to, I think, it, I think the different, that's one thing I found in my store. I just shoot from the hip. Now I have to go like check and make sure. I mean, when, when there are more people listening, you're like, okay, what to say? But I think it goes down to six on there, mm-hmm. but you put, you put 30% tea tree oil in the different gel and it goes right to those. It's, it's really kind of, for me, it's pharmacist dork cool. You know, yeah. I, mean, I look at it, I'm like, this is brilliant because the tea tree oil is going to suck it right into those glands and it'll isolate there. And so it's really cool. So it'll, it'll, it'll be a whole different game. And that one was the one I'm excited about right now. Cool. I love that. I can't wait to try it. And I've told you this, but I think you're the next car mom in the, <laughs> and we've had Kelly, the car mom on here on the, on, sorry, on the podcast. Um, and her Instagram blew up because she shared very useful, helpful information that people needed that they weren't getting anywhere else. And it was just This is the one thing you're going to get out of this account. So I think that people are loving your account as well for the same reason. They can come to you. They can find these really interesting solutions and hacks and advice that they're not getting from anybody else. So it's, I mean, especially the hacks are so brilliant and so cool because maybe you're, you know, your pharmacist down the street is going to tell you like, yeah, you can take Sudafed when you're pregnant, but they're not going to tell you like mix this with that and throw a little bit of this in, and then you're going to take care of your foot fungus or whatever. Right. That's my 19 years of struggling of trying to keep my own store open. There's, there's a lot to that. Um, 
you know, it's the struggle that makes us better. But when you're struggling through it, you don't like it so much. So that's a lot of these. Well, they're mine. There's a few of them I've taken and they're adjusted from other things. But I think of myself a little more of a chef than a cook. So that's when it comes to pharmacy. Yeah. Are there a few things that you think every household should have? Like if we walk into a pharmacy today, it's like, don't walk out without Neosporin and whatever. Hydrocortisone, Benadryl. Okay. Neosporin, you, I'd actually get the polysporin, which is only two instead of the three. Um, I would get, because the neomycin can be ototoxic and it's not good for kids. Hmm. So the bacitracin is a good one to go with. But yeah, you, you want that. Zinc oxide. What zinc oxide. Zinc oxide is what's in all of your, your diaper paste. It's good for burns. It's got oh. all sorts of stuff. It's super sticky. Mm. And, and I'm actually putting together a list. I should have been more prepared for this. Um, no, it's great. You got, you got like a little, little over a week. <laughs> uh, you need a nasal steroid. People don't use them enough. Nasal steroids for that dry, hacky cough. You're shocked how much a nasal steroid when it drains down the back of your throat works better than everything else. Really? Oh, my husband's the worst when he gets sick. I don't know what it is between him and me because it does not happen to me, but he will hack and cough all night long for like weeks. And I'm like, are you enjoying this? Why are you coughing so much? <laughs> A lot of it, the dry hacky costs, you're better off getting like benzocaine lozenges or chloroseptic spray and using a nasal steroid than, than all the cough suppressants because we don't want to, your throat's mad at you. Yeah. So that's why it's doing it. It's like having an inflamed. So it doesn't matter how much you tell your brain not to do it. Your throat's still going to be mad at you. So you numb the throat and put the steroid on it. It works better. So nasal steroids for sure. And none of this needs to be expensive. That's the other thing is, is that my goal has never been for me to like make an online store there, but it's, I want to make it accessible. So yeah. all of this stuff should be cheap when you walk out. Okay. Well, that's really cool. Maybe, um, I don't know how long it takes you, but if, if you have that available, we'll put it in the show notes and people can, I'll, you know, I'll send it to you so you can put it on the show notes and I'll okay. send you one of each. Cause you've been so sweet. Like you've been, I'm really grateful. No, we we're grateful for you too. You've been so awesome for me and my family. And, you know, we've already used a lot of your hacks and good advice and it's been awesome. So Phil, last question, if there's one message that you want people to remember from this podcast episode, what do you want that one message to be? I would say no one can like you more than you like yourself. I think that's really the thing, whether it's mental health or addiction or anything else, people need to start being more okay with who they are and then we'll just be better off. I know that really doesn't have pharmacy related, but I think we need to start liking ourselves better. I'm okay with who I am and you should be too. Yeah. I love it. That's solid advice, solid life advice for everyone. Right. Right. And I won't get all the haters. So that was, no. that's, that's been a little tricky. <laughs> yeah. It's like, anytime you put yourself out there, you're, that's inevitable, you know, but right. you're doing an awesome job. You also, when you go to TikTok, like you're just asking for it. People are mean on TikTok. They were, but you know, I went through and I've answered almost 1800 comments. And every time I had the goal of answering with something nice, no matter how mean they were, <laughs> They're super sweet now, like for yeah. real. They're as cool. nice as my Instagrammers are now because I think it's just not fun when... It's disarming. It, yeah, I mean, and it doesn't really matter what they say. I've just decided that it's okay they have a different opinion and I respect you as an individual and it's been funny. It's also been really nice because my Instagrammers have gone over there and when somebody says something mean, they get lit up. So I don't yeah. even have to do it anymore. So it's been awesome. That I always, is, it's that's great. the best. <laughs> 
cool. <laughs> well, where can people find you if they're listening to this and they don't follow you yet and they want to? So uh, Phil's my pharmacist on Instagram is the easiest way to do it. Yeah. But I'm also Phil's my pharmacist on that's our website address as well as Phil's my pharmacist on TikTok. So we kind of got it all the way across the way. If you put Phil's my pharmacist, we'll come up in every format. Oh, we're also on YouTube. We have one episode on YouTube. Cool. So and eight people, full eight people have watched it. I'm going to go. It's going to be nine after this. I'm going to go watch it too. <laughs> thank you so much. Awesome. Thank you, Phil. You have a good day. Thanks so much for listening to Mint Arrow Messages. Make sure you follow us on Instagram at Mint Arrow. Subscribe to our Apple Podcasts and rate and review us if you like us. And to get show notes, go to mintarrow.com slash podcast. And you can even sign up to get show notes emailed right to your inbox. And we'll email you every time there's a new episode.